0: Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education, and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Our guest this week is Nick Crocker, who's a general partner at Blackbird Ventures. One of Australia's largest and most successful venture firms. Nick is an investor in a string of flourishing startups, including Culture Amp, Applied, Eucalyptus, Dovetail, and Beyond Ag. Nick knows the world of venture capital well, having co founded one of the first companies that Blackbird funded, called Sessions. As co founder and CEO of Sessions, Nick was dedicated to creating technology to help people live better, healthier lives. Sessions was acquired by MyFitnessPal in 2013, which itself was acquired by Under Armour in 2015, with Nick proceeding into the role of Chief of Staff of their entire Connected Fitness business. On the side, Nick co-founded We Are Hunted, which was acquired by Twitter in 2013. He returned home to Australia from Silicon Valley and was the inaugural CEO of the Accelerator Startmate before he handed the CEO baton to our previous podcast guest, Michael Batcoe. Nick is endlessly curious, and while he was studying political science and law at the University of Queensland, he worked as a journalist with News Limited. His love of writing is evident in his fascinating Substack newsletter. And while he knows a lot about integrated hardware software products, he never wants to limit the type of founders that he connects with, just in case he misses the next one who absolutely inspires him. And somehow, he manages to do all this while being a role model husband and father. Nick, great to see you.
1: Likewise, great to see you.
0: You're a general partner at Blackbird Ventures, which seems like one of the best jobs in the world. How did you find yourself in that happy position?
1: Well, that is correct, and it is, doesn't seem like it genuinely is one of the best jobs. I was the third founder that Blackbird ever invested in, so I got to know uh, Nikki and Rick, as investors when I was on the founding side and loved working with them, loved my experience. Blackbird and startups was such a different thing back then.
0: So what year was that back in 2013? 13. 13, yep.
1: People were still doubting that you could even build a good engineering team in Sydney, let alone a good globally relevant startup. I was based in San Francisco at the time, and I'd actually got to know Nikki through the Startmate experience. I attended the very first demo day and I made my very first angel investment in the 2012 Startmate cohort. So had, had really got to know the startup community and Nikki through that experience and then deepened that relationship by um, having Blackbird as an investor. And then uh, I was in San Francisco, uh, Nikki asked me to find someone to help him run the US component of the Startmate program. I spent a couple of weeks introducing him to people and couldn't find anyone. But in sort of selling other people on the idea, I decided that actually this would be a really cool thing to do. So uh, I just said I'll, I'll, I'll help out and just started helping out startmate companies as they came to San Francisco. And this was in the, the early days of Blackbird when I think it was just four or five people. And I was lucky enough to just get involved really early at the right time, very organic experience, getting to know the team. I really liked them all personally. I loved being involved. Somehow I just started attending partner meetings and partner pitches. And it was always by osmosis, I would say, that I became a part of the team. So I felt very natural when we came home to Australia in 2016, after we'd had our first child. To try and find a way to join Blackbird in a in a permanent way. And so I, I think I offered to take over Startmate from Nikki. And so I did and very quickly went from running Startmate to, to ultimately becoming a partner at Blackbird and, and now here we are.
0: And so how did you become a founder in the first place? Because I mean you've got it looks like you've got a really interesting history in terms of you know studying law and politics at uni and being a journalist and doing all sorts of stuff doesn't seem like the sort of natural trajectory to becoming a founder.
1: Yep, I surprised myself um, that 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 was where I ended up. I was talking to my mum about this the other day. We just didn't have any entrepreneurs around us growing up. It was it was almost a foreign concept. And then, as a journalist, I had a column, and my uh, weekly column, I would profile like a really inspiring young person. And so I was all over the map with poets and politicians and puppeteers and all these amazing people. And I met like entrepreneurs as this kind of category of interesting person and it was about five or ten minutes into the conversation with these entrepreneurs that I was like oh this is who I've been my whole life I didn't realize until now and then I wrote that article got to know these guys they were like you know come over to the to the good side of life and being an entrepreneur as well and pretty quickly that's exactly what I did but it was um Definitely not in the plan. It just felt right as soon as I discovered that there was a life you could lead that was, you know, effectively entirely self-authored and self-defined, which is what entrepreneurship is. And I loved it. I'm better at being an investor than I was at being an entrepreneur. I think um, there's certain psychological profiles that are great for entrepreneurship and certain psychological profiles that are great for investing. And I certainly have the investing one, I think.
0: Can you tell us, like, just catalogue the the sort of key things for each of those different personality types that lend themselves to either being a founder or an investor?
1: I would say I'm constantly surprised at how capable founders are at handling high levels of stress over a sustained period of time. And to someone like me, it actually looks like almost like an insensitivity to pain or an insensitivity to, to worry or risk. And they're just... Entrepreneurs are just so brave for what they withstand to force the thing that they're making into the world. If you're someone that feels things really intensely and feels emotions in a really intense way, being an entrepreneur can be kind of a wild ride because all in a day, you'll have these feelings of total despair that the company's not going to succeed. And then these high feelings of, hey, maybe I'm onto something here and maybe this is going to actually work out. That can be a roller coaster and can be very tiring if you maintain it over multiple years so there's an emotional endurance and an emotional regulation that i think is suited to entrepreneurship the thing that you struggle that is the struggle part of being an investor is you never control any of the outcomes that you're seeking your success is in the hands of others effectively and i think for a lot of entrepreneurs that would just be the worst possible outcome to to not be com- completely in control but actually feel really um, comfortable with it and part of my job is to choose to work with people who I trust to solve problems that I'm not going to be in the room to help solve.
0: You must see so many fantastic entrepreneurs but pictures. Is it hard not to fall in love with lots and lots of them more than you could ever invest in?
1: No the hard thing is that these are really good people who you admire who are in most cases build companies better than the one you built and you get put in the power power position of saying yes or no, and you just end up saying no all the time. And if you're a people-pleasing person, it's quite tiring to be so consistently saying no to people that you really respect and admire and whose businesses are actually pretty good. And at least my experience of this job is that it's mostly just feelings of no, this isn't right. And so when those when the opposite happens and you feel that, overwhelming sense of yes it's very obvious you don't have to guess what that feeling is and it's why I want to why we talk about love at first sight at Blackbird we are looking for those moments of love at first sight when you see a company or a founder doing their life's work and so actually it's just it's just being patient enough to wait for that moment and not trying to force it when it's not there.
0: And how much of that is just intuition and how much of that is that sort of blink concept that you've done it so many times that you sort of recognize the pattern of what's gonna make something a great investment.
1: Yeah, I think it's a huge amount of that, especially at the early stage. And the the technical answer to that question is backed up for me over the last five years. I just haven't had a situation where it wasn't love at first sight, but some amount of information or time changed my mind. Like it's usually love at first sight and then the information confirms that. It's at first, I I think I spent a couple of years trying to push, tamp down my intuition and say, come up with reasons to justify why I was thinking the way I was. And I think one thing that I've done over the last couple of years in particular is actually turn up that intuition and really be tuned into it and pay a lot of attention to it when I can feel it. I can sense that that I'm seeing something that I really like and, and... yeah, being in tune with my intuition is a really important thing So I actually think intuition is built up of all the experiences I've had, every person that I've met, every interaction that I've had, every place that I've lived. Just because it happens fast doesn't mean it's not a valuable data point. It's actually a data point that is kind of the sum total of all my experiences and it's the only way I can be a good investor is to express that part of myself. It doesn't guarantee that I make good investments, but it's the only way I can do this job sustainably and authentically.
0: And so do you have a sort of investment thesis that that sort of limits the universe of things that you'll have that intuition about quality or is it a founder and a business that's of sort of any description so long as it's got some relevant core characteristics?
1: The answer is on the Blackbird side, we only invest in Australia and, and Kiwi founders wherever they are in the world. So that's one limitation. Personally, I can only do investments with founders that I can see myself working with over the next decade. So I have to feel energy from those early interactions because the relationship won't be a good one if the energy on either side is drained. You know, we're going on a really long journey. For the most part, it'll be fine, but there'll be some moments where we really have to be relying on each other, trusting each other, working through really difficult situations. And the strength of the relationship is going to come from all the the build up over time of, of the trust and knowledge and and just all those little things that build up in a relationship so I, I think the biggest constraint and I don't think it's a good or a bad thing it just is but the biggest constraint for me is just finding founders where I do feel like I can be that decade plus partner to them on the journey and then if I can see that I can invest in anything so I've Invested in a company that feeds food waste to insects, uh, a headphone company, a company that helps track how people use commercial office space, a company that helps user researchers to manage and share their information, a healthcare company, a company that helps knitters to knit things digitally. Like, There's no rhyme or reason to the kinds of businesses I like, but there's a consistency in the kinds of founders that I like and, and they're people I can see myself working with.
0: And what sort of personal characteristics do they have? What's the sort of magic for you in terms of being able to work with them?
1: Generally, they give me a sense of amazement. I would say that's the one consistent thread across all of them is if I kind of examine the emotion that I feel when I am with them, there is a sense of genuine amazement. Apart from that, they're all so different. (laughs) So different. So they're all extreme personalities in very different ways. They're all outliers in some way. And- Can give
0: us some examples, some, some of the founders that are outliers?
1: So I'll talk about Phoebe Gardner, who's the CEO of Barty. So she was an architect, had never been a founder before. But her mix of being obsessed with insects, obsessed with the mission of the company and the values of the company and building a team around that, And she has sort of an athlete-like competitive sense. And I use this in the most positive way that's like almost psychotic. (laughs) Like that's a a compliment. And so it's this really amazing mix of mission-driven, but also driven-driven. But Phoebe amazes me. Benjamin at Dovetail amazes me. His attention to detail, his ability to build elegant, intuitive software products his fearlessness to hold the bar on his team on high quality always and to never let it drop and to never lose energy or enthusiasm for holding the bar high amazes me. Tim at Eucalyptus amazes me, his ability to attract extraordinary people to come on the mission with him, his ability to see markets and opportunities in a way that most people don't. You know, Kate Glazebrook at Applied who's moved on from being the, the CEO there, when I first met her, her, just her depth of thought that had gone into building the product that applied and thinking through how you would run a hiring process that removed bias was, it was the depth that people go to when they do a PhD. And she mixed that academic depth with just that incredible believability when she got in front of a room and explained the mission of the company. So. Yeah, they're, again, they're all very different people, different backgrounds, different skill sets, you know, it's a for Phoebe, it's this kind of ability to to tell stories and rally her team about around a mission for Benjamin, it's this incredible product obsession for Tim, it's around this kind of marketing and capital allocation mix, it, it's just all so different, but in in their own ways, and and there's obviously more. I'm not that's not the exhaustive list. All the founders I work with amaze me in the same way, but those are just different kinds of founders, and it, it's what keeps this job so endlessly interesting.
0: I think we often say to founders, be careful who you have on your cap table. Make sure that you've got good investors, like you say, you're on a you know journey together for a long time. If you could sort of create a profile that meant that only the the perfect founders ever contacted you. What would you sort of describe about yourself as an investor so that people would know exactly who should be approaching you for investment?
1: That's a good question. Maybe this is a cop-out answer, but I'm definitely committed to the idea that I don't know who the next great founder will be and I don't know what the next great company or theme will be. And so, my immediate response when you ask me that question is that I don't want to answer you because I don't want to risk that I say something that excludes the next great founder because I made an off-the-cuff remark or response to what you said.
0: You just seem incredibly generous with your time. It doesn't seem like there's any founder that you wouldn't take a meeting with. How do you do that?
1: A, it was a lesson learned the hard way. People who know me know that I track my time down to the minute at work to better understand. I do believe that if you wanna see what someone values, go look at the calendar. And so to that extent, I wanna make sure that I'm holding myself to that same standard. But there was a period through 2020 during COVID where I was really internally focused on helping the portfolio companies that I serve to get through that very uncertain time in Q2. And we also went on a process of growing the Blackbird team from eight to 32. And so I really focused myself on helping the team grow and helping our founders through COVID. And you can see the number of new companies I met through the early parts of 2020 really dropped off. And I found myself at the end of last year, realizing that I'd only done one investment for the whole year. And that's fine. I'm willing to wait, but that did seem light. And as I did the analysis, I realized that I had deprioritized meeting new companies. And so I made a really... Just decision at the beginning of this year that number one priority in any way would be meeting new companies, and that I didn't want to operate to my timelines. I wanted to operate to founder timelines, which is let's talk tomorrow. Not it's a terrible experience for a founder to get an email from me saying, "Hey, let's meet in three weeks," and that's not what I want to do. So. Through a process of iteration, I basically just have blank spots all through the week that are blocked out for the chance that I get introduced to a founder today so that they can get on my calendar this afternoon or or early next week. I have Wednesdays fully blocked so I can always capture stuff that's coming through the week on Wednesdays if I haven't caught, caught it in some of the open founder slots. I'll move other meetings for the opportunity to meet a founder for the first time because it's a, just a really clear prioritization. That's the most important thing that I do for Blackbird is to build relationships with, with founders at the earlier stage. So when I didn't have lots of portfolio companies and lots of investments, it was easy. At the beginning, I just had an empty calendar. Now it becomes a, a real art. And unfortunately, as long as I'd say no to founders, I have to say no all the time to people that I otherwise would love to spend time with. That's something that came with uh, having kids because there was no longer mornings and there were no longer nights and there were no longer weekends. And so I was was limited to my 40 quality hours a week of work. And eventually you just have to start flipping from being a yes person, which is what what makes you successful in your 20s, to being a no person, which is the only way you can become a a good parent, maintain some semblance of health and continue to deliver on the professional front.
0: I caught up with Michael Backbo the other day and he suggested that you were one of his heroes in terms of the way you've been able to really be successful in all parts of your life. So, you know, the work you do as an investor balanced with the role model you show about being a great parent. How have you been able to achieve that?
1: That's, um, that is a very kind thing for him to say. I'm, um, I'm actually overwhelmed by that. Well, I guess it's worth saying that I don't feel successful in all parts of my life if I just isolate parenting parenting is so continually challenging in different ways as your children grow that I don't feel any sense of expertise in that domain The one thing I can say with absolute confidence uh, and one thing I've worked out about kids I've got a six-year-old and a two-year-old and the way I came to this realization is I thought about all the people I know who have great parents who are adults and speak about having great parents and none of them talk about how wealthy their parents were or the toys they had. All they talk about is that they got time. Like, that's pretty much it. And so to the extent that I'm a good parent or I end up being a good parent, it will be because I made sure that my kids have my time. But it's also the one kind of time that can't be done efficiently. It's not like a more efficient 15 minutes with my six-year-old is better than an inefficient. Like, it's, it's just... More time is better for him and less time is worse. And I gotta just give him as much as I can. And I I I do that to, you know, to the detriment of other parts of my life. And I'm really blessed to have a, a wife who I'm just really well balanced with. She's a doctor, so we have independently ambitious lives professionally, but we both want the same thing at home, which is be at the table for breakfast, be at the table for dinner, do the baths be there when the kids go down and so that's the thing that I have just really committed to is I don't think anyone ever feels like they're a good parent but I'm a parent that puts the time in and that's really the only thing that I think ultimately my boys will remember from me.
0: Do you think it makes you a better investor as well to the extent that you've got more capability to see different types of founders that prioritise Different types of things and have a recognition that they'll be successful, notwithstanding that they've got family commitments or other things beyond the business they're building?
1: It certainly gives me empathy for any founder that has young children. So it makes me a better investor in that sense. And it's possible that if I didn't have kids, I might think of founders with kids as somehow having less time. But actually, everyone who has kids knows that you get more efficient, not less, because you have to. And so I think the only thing it really gives me a different perspective on is just empathy for what it must be like to do family and entrepreneurship at the same time. But again, most people who have kids realize that there's a huge amount that goes out for the kids, but then there's a huge amount that you get back that on balance, you hope, evens out over time. (laughs) You can never calculate on the day, but over a a year or over a lifetime, it, it always seems to work out
0: it's sort of fabulous when I hear someone with your humility suggest that they don't feel like they're successful in everything in their life. Is there a failure or a setback that you've experienced that that has really helped you grow and learn?
1: Yeah, um, I was um, a very inept law student, like just genuinely bad at the craft of law. The university should have had a higher standard and just said, you're never going to make it, you're out, you know, it was that bad. And um, did you go to
0: Mexico in the middle of your university degree? I did. That was,
1: that was one of the best experiences I've ever had. But I was on the bench for the basketball team. You know, I wasn't a star on the basketball team. My Spanish was, no, my Spanish was pretty good. Uh, I don't know. I, I, think, I think success as a framework is really tricky because everything is so transient and everything is constantly changing. So I don't think as I look back, there's anything I think has been a particular success because it all feels like it's still going on. The second that I stop investing in it, it'll stop being a success. So there's no, there's no sense of I can rest on my laurels and look back. It, it, it feels all like it's a live thing. My relationship with my wife, my relationship with my kids, the companies that I serve, the role I play at Blackbird, they're not fixed things. They're things that evolve. And so... Yeah, I think maybe what I would say is that success and failure are generally lies because had I not had such a bad experience in law, let's say that I was good at law, I would have ended up at a law firm and instead of being a journalist and meeting those entrepreneurs, maybe I would have spent three more years trying to figure it out inside the law firm. So being in retrospect, being bad at law was awesome because no one hired me. So I didn't even get the chance to spend three years being a bad lawyer in a law firm. So is that a success or is that a failure? I mean, I think there's a trap to be too attached to one or the other or to define things as one or the other, because ultimately they're they're both. It just depends on how you approach them or how you frame them.
0: You lived in Silicon Valley for a few years. What was that experience like? And particularly just on that point in terms of thinking about success and failure, my, my sense is that that community has quite a different approach to, to thinking about you know what success and failure look like and how does that compare to, to coming back and living and working in Australia?
1: Yeah, I felt really myself when I moved to America because I grew up in Queensland and it was definitely not the done thing to be ambitious or yeah. try and promote yourself too much or share that you had great hopes in life it was kind of just keep it down basically it was the vibe I got growing up but it didn't mean that I didn't have these grand ambitions inside me and then I got to the U.S. I went to New York in the first instance and I was just felt so calmed by the amount of ambition in that city and the fact that there was almost no level of achievement that I could achieve in the U.S. that would come even close to the top and so I went from a just to from a small fish in Australia to just a, a tadpole in the US. And then you just realised it's quite freeing because you've, there's an, you're just invisible. You could be whoever you wanted to be, do whatever you wanted to do and no one would really pay attention because there was so much, so many people with louder ambitions and, and making a bigger splash. So I found the, the US incredibly comforting and like it was a great place to develop who I wanted to be in my late 20s but that said I do love there's a part of Australian founding culture and founder culture that's very humble it's very efficient that gets huge results from small amounts of help and small amounts of attention and small amounts of resources there's a real in the same way that we win so many gold medals at the Olympics in sport, there's an there's a Olympic spirit to Australian founders that I love and didn't appreciate. The US is obsessed with, still I think too much, obsessed with the badge of Harvard or the badge of Stanford or the badge of working at Facebook or the badge of whatever it might be. And that just ends up being a trap where everyone's just chasing these meaningless prizes in life and kind of comparing things that don't matter. So looking back, I got a little caught up, I think, in thinking that all of that mattered and it actually doesn't. But the net of the US was just superbly positive for me and it just changed what I thought was possible in the world and what I was capable and possible of. And I was surrounded by some of the most interesting and incredible people. And it was, it, I'm, I remember going there in 2012 and thinking, oh my God, I'm like the last person to arrive here. Maybe text done and I'm, I'm the last, I'm too late. And then you realise that that was actually quite a, you know, that was some, there was some groundbreaking that I was doing as one of that first group of founders going over in the early 2010s. So I look back now as one of the best things I ever did.
0: I'm so interested in that observation about ambition. And I think many Australian founders feel like it's okay to get a start in Australia but the first thing I need to do is just get to the US because that's you know if I'm ambitious that's where I need to be and if I want someone to back me I should be looking for VC money out of the US. What do you say to founders when they when they have that sort of drive to just skip out of Australia as soon as possible?
1: I think if you want to do it you should it's the best thing ever it's the US is still super underrated I think because it's the world superpower still, one of the world superpowers, I should say, we all look at it very critically. But if as many people in the world were being critical of Australia, I think they'd find as many things to to point out. And and actually, when you get to the US, it's, um, it's physically one of the most beautiful places on earth. It's got these just these really incredible pockets of people and because there's such a large population like even niche things in in the US are huge relative to Australia so whatever it is that you love in Australia you might have 10 people in Australia that you can talk to about it in the US there might be a thousand and that's you know we all have a sense of needing community in life and it's and because Americans on balance tend to promote themselves and what they love much more strongly it's easy to find these pockets of passionate connection so I loved America I loved the people that I met and so anyone who wants to go and pursue that I I would never say don't my god Australia has changed in the last 10 years when it comes to founder ambition Mike and Scott from Atlassian have shown us all what is possible Cliff and Mel from Canva have proved that it's not a fluke and there are now thousands and thousands of people to talk to if you're passionate about founding a company where there was 10s 20 years ago and hundreds 10 10 years ago. Now there's meetups every night and VCs and founders and operators and accelerators and it's just a huge, incredible, supportive community here. So if you want to do it, do it for sure, but you don't have to do it. Whereas 10 years ago, you did have to do it. There just wasn't enough here to sustain really ambitious people. But it's changed. And that's really, we're going to see the benefits of that for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years in Australia of all these people deciding you can build companies and putting their energy and efforts into that versus other things.
0: You mentioned Melanie Perkins at um, Canva, which is one of Blackbird's most successful investments and arguably one of the best software companies in the world these days. How much do you think Melanie has changed our view on what female founders can achieve?
1: Well, I think she's changed our view on what founders can achieve, period. Man, woman or otherwise. She's just shown you that having an extraordinary vision for what you want to build is possible. So she's reset the bar for founders, full stop. I think for women 10 years ago, for anyone going on the founding journey, there weren't heaps of role models. And so I think it is a net good that the, you know, arguably the number one role model for founders in Australia right now is a woman, because I think it will, to the extent that any founder has doubts about what they're capable of, I think Melanie shows you what's possible, but she explicitly says it's possible for women to do this as well. And I think that's powerful, but again, I don't want to overplay uh, Melanie's inspiring to women. Melanie's inspiring to every founder in the world and not just Australia. Like what she has been able to do at Canva, to your point, it's one of the best private, if not the best private software company in the world. And so she just raises the bar for every founder, full stop.
0: You know, she's certainly an inspiration for me. Is there other people who have either inspired you or been a role model for you or, or sort of helped shape the person you are today?
1: Yeah, I mean the, the one that immediately comes to mind is my mum I think if you're born with a great mum you have a competitive advantage from that lasts forever so I was lucky to have a mum that loved me and cared for me and always told me that I could do whatever I wanted in life and led, led by example she was a doctor and a really engaged mum and she did so many adventurous things in her life and she just showed me that anything was possible in the Not just what she said to me and the way she kind of believed in me, but in how she lived. So mum is kind of it on that front. In terms of other personal heroes, I, I think one thing I've learned over time is that people can have components of themselves that are heroic, but most people up close are just people. And so there are parts of people that I have the most profound admiration for or I have admiration for things that they did but I'm also conscious of the wholeness of who they are is still full of contradiction and and error and flaw but I have random heroes like uh, the architect who designed the Sydney Opera House his name's Jorn Utzon and he is a visionary and the proof of that is the Sydney Opera House and the way he lived his life is truly like inspirational to me I admire Paul Keating who I think is the best prime minister that Australia ever had and I think the legacy of superannuation and many of the things that he did are truly transformative and it sounds really cliche but I genuinely am in awe of LeBron James and everyone at blackbird jokes with me about how much I love LeBron James but I just I think mastery in any field is something to admire and I love it's again very cliche but I love basketball and he's he's my favorite player and so I'm just in awe of what he can do so there's just little parts of people that I that I admire but my mum is in her fullness that person and then for the rest it's just little things that I love and admire.
0: It strikes me that you pay homage to mastery really explicitly so your you know regular newsletter branches I think is a sort of fabulous collection of recognizing you know when people do something to an excellent standard why do you put the newsletter together?
1: Yeah it's a great question. Uh, I genuinely love writing and despite effectively working in financial services as a full-time job I do have this huge creative part of who I am that doesn't get to be expressed I can't sing, I can't play a musical instrument, I can't paint, but I find that creative satisfaction in writing, even the newsletters, which are really short, a couple of hundred words. I love the process of curating them, deciding what goes in or out, and then deciding how to describe what I'm connecting to and whatever's being shared. And it's become, again, harder and harder as the kids have taken up more and more time to find both the energy and the time for that pure creativity but I can sometimes just have this crossover of finding a number of things that I think are fascinating having a little window of time and then just having this urge to go and be creative and it's really for no one else but myself and I love just putting it out there and I love that occasionally I'll share something that will really connect with someone or I think my, the most popular thing I ever shared was this recommendation to watch this French detective show called The Bureau. And the number of people that have come back to me and said, that's like one of my favorite shows ever now. <laughs> that's been very satisfying. So even knowing that I introduce people to 50 hours of The Bureau, that's a little cherry on top of what's ultimately a bit of a selfish process to just be creative. And I genuinely feel in a flow state when I write those things. It's just, I spend three or four hours just completely in them. And yeah, when when people connect with the content, it it does have a nice sense of recognition to it as well.
0: The breadth of your interests as demonstrated by the newsletter is just enormous. Where do you find content or are there places where you'd recommend to go for content, books, podcasts, other places?
1: Yeah, I've subscribed to like 250 newsletters and I'm just kind of, again, when I can, just flick through them and I
0: but any go-to favorite newsletters that you would recommend uh
1: yes uh my god there's so many so I'll I, I just compile them to someone so I'll send them to you
0: and podcast or book recommendations
1: good question I'm weak on books at the moment I find my, I just struggle and all the podcasts I listen to are NBA podcasts <laughs> and they help me to fall asleep so outside of that the one that i think is probably the gold standard is a start, is a podcast called invest like the best and the deep dives that he does with founders uh, are just really good and he has a backlog that will keep you occupied for two years and the quality of his content is just so so high so there's a lifetime of learning in the invest like the best podcast i'll say that
0: you said before when we were talking that you really track your time really carefully any tips for living a life that delivers most of what you want. So, you know, productivity hacks, but probably more than that, you know, how do you create the life that has the the time spent on the best things?
1: It's a very aspirational thing to want to spend your life on the best things. And then in the execution of it becomes quite mundane because your life will fall to the level of whatever systems you have in place to run it. So at some point you'll have this spark of energy. I'm going to start this new habit, learn a new language, whatever it might be. And then your momentum and your motivation ultimately tails off, whether it's in a day or 10 days or 10 weeks, that motivation comes in waves. And all you're left with at that point is the system by which you live your life. And so you really want to ask yourself in a bad week when you're tired and sick and stress and got meetings and what do you still get done? And so for me, the quality of my life is proportional to how I do the basics of it. So do I set, am I proactive in my planning of the week before it happens? Am I getting, because every week either happens to you or, or you happen to it. And to be dictated week after week, what you have to do, just you end up feeling like you're on the rat wheel. And what you need to do is be in the in the habit of every week planning. This is what I need to do this week cancelling the things that you've clearly committed to, that you overcommitted over committed to, creating the space to do the things that matter, declining the things that don't. This is the other part of living the life you want. It actually involves a huge amount of saying no to things that are in that, so it's obvious to say no to things that are bad ideas, obvious to say yes to things that are wonderful and then this whole middle group of things that are good that you just ultimately have to decline in order to do the things that are that are great. and. That actually is is quite a mundane skill to be a person that says no to things, but that is actually the definition of doing what you want is because as you go through life, you build up commitments, whether it's to family, friends or work, and people just end up asking of you more than you can give. Your only defense against that is to push back and define what you want and live with the consequences of doing that. And that actually is quite a journey for most people. Most people, live. most of us, I include myself in this bucket, to an extent we live our lives through the expectations of others. And those are the expectations we create in our own mind about what others are feeling and how they're feeling about us. And it's a, it's a huge evolution at an individual level to do things for yourself and to live with the consequences of, of what happens with living that way. And most people never, never even approach that. And then I guess the final thing I would say is just it's actually quite a hard thing in life to define what you want so the hardest step is actually saying what you want and being accurate with that because what you profess to want when you get it you may not actually want at all and uh, it may take you a few goes to define exactly what you want versus what you think you want versus what you actually do need and so I also think that is an evolving journey where what you thought you wanted at 20 you want something different at 30 and then something different at 40 again and so being good at expressing what you want and living with with the consequences of that excluding other things happening that actually becomes the core skill to learn and most people never get to that point because it's just so far from what they expect you know they think that the life you want is just all roses and it's not it's um it's actually about a discipline and a commitment over time so that you have energy for the right things. So I I talk about time management, but actually really it's about energy management and making sure that I have energy for the things I need to have energy for the week and not spending it in other places where it's not needed. But it's a constant battle and a constant struggle for me.
0: Last question. What are you really excited and optimistic
1: about? Oh... uh, I think it's very easy to be pessimistic about the world. Like you can really, it doesn't take much to cherry pick all the things that are worrisome about where we are. But in the founders that we see every day who pitch us, the founders that we serve every day, the ones that we've invested in through our foundation and our grants program to young people doing creative things, through our fellowship in the Startmate program, there are just so many extraordinary people out in the world. and there seems to be no shortage of them because the second you feel like you've covered the ground and you've met them all or you you've met all the great founders and all the great creative people, there's just a new generation of them being born. So I feel net net very optimistic about the world just because of the quality of us and this isn't this isn't everyone, but there's a subset of every generation that are just truly extraordinary. It's surprising how much difference they can make and I think the world's becoming a better place for people like that and so I feel really optimistic about the future because of the quality of the people that we get to meet every day and especially the next generation coming through I think I'm just in awe of their creativity and I feel really optimistic for the future on that basis.
0: So oh, it's fantastic to spend time with you, Nick. Thank you, and yeah, can't wait to see you know all of the amazing things that the Blackbird portfolio companies achieve. Thanks for having me. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did, and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive like Scale Investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five day short course combining one hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders. Access to an online education platform and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au